This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. When you need energy on the go and don't have time to wait in line, grab Espresso Monster. Espresso Monster is a premium blend of espresso and cream made with freshly brewed espresso coffee, hormone-free milk, and a unique energy blend complete with taurine and B vitamins. Each can has three shots of espresso and comes in vanilla espresso and espresso and cream flavors. I had one this morning before I came into the studio, and let me tell you, it gave me just the boost I needed to get my day going. Plus, it tastes so delicious, I'd drink it anyway. So close your eyes, take a sip, and enjoy Espresso Monster today. And now, enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. For hundreds of years, humans have sought the elusive fountain of youth, or some version of it, but with technology and health sciences making increasingly bolder promises in the 21st century, cheating death has become an obsession. In the U.S. alone, the longevity industry is estimated to be a $7.1 trillion business, led by tech billionaires like Amazon's Jeff Bezos and Oracle's Larry Ellison, who are determined to beat the aging process, and leaders of a growing transhumanist movement like Ray Kurzweil, who takes 150 dietary supplements a day in hopes of achieving immortality. But my guest today says the secret to happiness, longevity, and living on isn't through sheep cells, blood transfusions, and being cryogenically frozen. It's through mentoring the next generation. In his new book, How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations, Mark Friedman, the founder of Encore.org, makes an impassioned and deeply personal call to find fulfillment and happiness in our longer lives by connecting with the next generation and forming a legacy of love that lives beyond us. And today, Mark discusses the influence of his own mentors in his early life and the movie that inspired him to explore the bonds between the oldest and youngest segments of the population. He talks about the elderly neighbors who act as surrogate grandparents to his own kids and the need for the role of grandparent to expand along with our changing ideas about what makes a family. Mark reveals what we can learn from the film The Intern, how the mentor-mentee relationship helps both young people and old people, and evidence of a side benefit to seniors who really do end up living longer. We attempt to figure out why some interests want to pit baby boomers and millennials against each other, and why for some people, ageism is still the last acceptable form of prejudice. He also describes the innovative ways that Singapore is investing in building greater bonds between young and old, and why he surprisingly predicts that artificial intelligence won't put older people out of work, but instead put a premium on precisely the kind of things that only seniors can offer. Plus, the starry-eyed dreamer who accidentally created age apartheid, how Otto von Bismarck decided your retirement age, and why your child's next college roommate just might be older than you are. Coming up with Mark Friedman in just a moment. (music) 
Mark Friedman is founder and CEO of Encore.org and one of the leading experts on the longevity revolution. Friedman is a member of the Wall Street Journal's expert group, a frequent commentator in the national media, and the author of four previous books, including his bestseller, The Big Shift, Navigating the New Stage of Middle Life. Now he follows it up with a book that calls for a restoration of the mutually beneficial bonds between young and old. It's titled How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure. Well, this title, How to Live Forever, might seem a little bit misleading to some people because (laughs) we've seen this big explosion in the whole transhumanist movement and tech titans like Jeff Bezos spending fortunes to try and figure out the secret to immortality. That's not what you're talking about with this book. What's your idea of living forever? Right. Well, you know, I feel like the the real fountain of youth is not in some Silicon Valley test tube uh, or the (laughs) imagination of some of these billionaire narcissists. But but in fact, the real fountain of youth is the fountain with youth. It's Mm -hmm. a timeless truth that the way we as human beings live on is through generations passing on what we've learned from life uh, to to those who will follow us and not running away from our mortality. You know, that's become a great passion, as you were saying, in Silicon Valley. There one magazine cover after another about how Google is trying to cheat death. They're spending billions uh, working with AbbVie and creating a company called Calico that's right. aiming at living to in, into the hundreds. Um, uh, the Oracle founder, Larry Ellison, was quoted in the media a couple of years ago saying that he never thought much about death. He never thought much of it, and to which Michael Kinsley, the founder of Slate, said, you know, it really doesn't matter what Larry Ellison thinks of death. What's much more important is what death thinks of Larry Ellison. <laughs> but, you know, this trying to pretend that we that we're not mortal beings that we can actually be the next generation is causing us to lose mm-hmm. the important truth that we need to to be there for the next generation. Rather than trying so hard to be young, we need to be there for those who actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that you have this term that you use in the book, uh, I want to say, bi- oh, biology, biology flows, flows down. down. <laughs> yeah. And that that's uh, actually not a quote f- from myself, but from George Vallant, who ran the most significant study of Adult Development, the 75-year Harvard study of adult development. He's a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. And what he found in that study is, first of all, that uh, the thing that matters most in life is our connection to other people, Mm -hmm. love. He he says happiness is love, full stop. But he, he doesn't stop there. He shows that older people who mentor the next generation, who connect with young people, invest in them are three times as likely to be happy as those who fail to do so. Wow. Yeah, and you know, it's sort of ironic, but the more I talk to people on the longevity front, the thing that comes up over and over again, uh, whether I'm talking to the guy who wrote The Blue Zones or other experts, is above everything else, exercise, diet, and everything, the one big factor in extending life is having these close relationships with family and friends and even having a sense of purpose and giving back and that sort of thing. Now, I read that you were inspired to write How to Live Forever by a film called Keep On Keeping On. Remind us what that film was about. It's a documentary by a first-time director that won some film festivals, came out a few years ago, and it's the story of a relationship between Clark Turry, one of the greatest jazz trumpet players of all mm-hmm. time. He was yeah. Miles 
Davis's mentor, Quincy Jones's mentor. In fact, Quincy Jones co-produced the film and a, a young pianist who was blind named Justin Coughlin. And they met when Turry was himself uh, late in life in his late 70s and he was teaching at a music school outside of New York City. He had diabetes and was going blind and he was introduced to Coughlin um, really for Coughlin to help Turry um, huh. uh, deal with his own blindness because Justin had lived since childhood without his sight. And it's it's one of the most beautiful stories of a cross-generational, mutually beneficial relationship and, and also a tradition in music and in, in jazz where older musicians do nurture the next generation mm-hmm. and has so many fundamental insights about how we can actually do that well. Yeah, and this is something that we see a lot in entertainment. You know, people get all warm and fuzzy about those relationships when they see it in movies like On Golden Pond or books like Tuesdays with Maury. So why don't we pursue those kind of relationships in real life as much? I I think we've lost our way. And it goes back to one of the things you were saying earlier about longevity. First of all, we've focused so much on adding years to life. JFK mm-hmm. in 1963, not too long before his death, got up in front of Congress and said we'd added years to life. Now it was time to add life to those years. So that's over half a century ago. Since that point, we've added two months a year on average to the American lifespan. <laughs> and as you say, we're, we're still trying to figure out what to do with all these years. And they're not years that yeah. are being tacked on in the end. They're really being added to the middle of life. They're vital years or the, the late middle. But people have described this period that's grown as a season in search of a purpose. Mm-hmm. And we, um, I think in human nature, that purpose is actually evident, but it's something that that we've lost uh, over time, and it's captured in films like Keep On Keeping On. One of the things that you say is that people who have good mentors when they're young are more likely to want to pay that forward later in life and be a mentor to someone themselves. Now, you've had several great mentors that you talk about in the book throughout your life. Talk a little about them and the impact that they had on your life. Well, probably the most important relationship, a mentoring relationship I've had uh, in my working life is with a guy named John Gardner, who was a remarkable person. He won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964, you know, that ultimate gold watch. Yeah. And then he uh, <laughs> he went on from that point to create the White House Fellows Program, to uh, run health education and welfare under Lyndon Johnson. He was the only Republican in Lyndon Johnson's administration to found Common Cause and to mentor countless people. Um, and he he helped me in, in enormous ways. Uh, he had a tough-minded optimism. Uh, one of my favorite expressions from him is, uh, America today faces op- breathtaking opportunities disguised as unsolvable problems. And that was really the, the way that he, he tackled Life And then even at the end of his life, um, I remember a speech that he gave in which he he was talking about aging. And he started out with a story from his mother who had called him up. She was 100 at the time. John was in his late 70s. And she said, Johnny, this whole aging thing has really got me down. And he tried to convince her that that she shouldn't be upset. He said, well, you've got all your faculties. You can still get around. He said, no, no, I'm not talking about myself. It's you and your brother that I'm worried about. (laughs) But he said in that same speech that he was more conscious than ever of the passage of time. And I I think about that a lot now because I've turned 60. I knew John when I was in my 20s. And 
I'm more conscious than ever of that that this is a precious period in life where we have our our faculties um, and we do have enough time to do something significant but but time isn't endless there's mm -hmm. a sense of of urgency that goes with it and so I'm I'm uh, I'm trying to learn some of those <laughs> lessons that John taught me and and to apply them in my mm -hmm. own life because it used to be that period of adult development where you were an apprentice. Apprenticeship and mentorship was a big part of that. I wonder why that's not the case. We don't hear about a lot of mentorships and apprenticeships anymore. I wonder if that's that millennials are just graduating college and going straight into the gig economy instead of taking traditional jobs or they're forming a startup. Perhaps they're thereby depriving themselves of that period of apprenticeship that's so important. You know, and and as life has has lengthened and lengthened, there are more than one uh, uh, opportunity to be an apprentice. I have a friend mm -hmm. who was who started a hotel chain. He retired, and was tapped by the founders of Airbnb to come in and mentor them. He was then in his huh. late fifties, and in the process, he he was teaching them about the hospitality industry. They were teaching him about the sharing economy, and mm -hmm. he describes himself. His name's Chip Conley, as becoming a modern elder. <laughs> where he was simultaneously a wise sage and an apprentice himself, and and I How think it's it it underscores that that these relationships are so mutual. But but to to your question, we have really lost this natural connection between older people and younger people over the last century. We started the 20th century as the most age-integrated society in the world and ended it as the most age-segregated, a kind of age apartheid that yeah. exists now where older and younger people have very little opportunity to connect in daily life. And, and that runs against the grain of human development. It runs against the grain of human history. There are evolutionary anthropologists who argue, and I think it's accepted in that field, that it was the role of grandmothers who actually made us human, that they, the nurturing that at the beginning of human history that older women did of human babies is what enabled both parents to go out and hunt and gather, mm -hmm. and it enabled the long gestational period that that results in big human brains and that differentiates mm -hmm. us from all other species. So really, if you go back to the beginning of time, older people played this role and did for millennia until the last century. And <laughs> and it's, it's a grievous wound that we've inflicted on ourselves, but we did it for the most understandable reasons. In, in the 19th century, we it was an agrarian society. We lived in multi-generational households. We worked side by side, older and younger in farms. Even one-room schoolhouses had people in their 30s and 40s right. next to children. Right. Yeah, And uh, we had no concept of age in society. We didn't even celebrate birthdays. But then beginning in, in the last century, we started to, to focus on a more quote-unquote efficient arrangement where we stuffed young people into mm -hmm. educational institutions, middle people into the workplace, and older people into a set of, of places like senior centers, mm -hmm. retirement communities, um, nursing homes, and the twain stopped meeting in, in daily life. And, and I was really interested in the science of these bonds because uh, you just mentioned something that I think is called the grandmother hypothesis which highlights how important these relationships are and how important it is to have that elder in a family's life because you say that this supposedly explains why women live longer than men. 
it does. It explains why women live beyond menopausal age. That was mm -hmm. a big question because men could keep right. reproducing until late in life. But anthropologists wondered, well, why if if women weren't reproducing, why why did they live long even from the beginning? And and that partly answers that question. But it it also answers that the thinking behind. Uh, the quote that you mentioned earlier, biology flows downhill. It's really biology. It's deeply rooted in in who we are. And and you know, it's funny. It took me twenty five or thirty years to to understand that because when I started my work, I was focused on research on on children, which has shown that young people who have support from adults are much more likely to to do well. And there's a, a whole body of research on resilient kids who grow up un, against the odds and who make it. And it always turns out that there's a caring adult in the mix. In fact, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was one of the great child development scholars in America over the last 50 years, who co-founded the Head Start program at the end of his life, was asked, you know, can you can you encapsulate everything you've learned from all of these years in scientific papers? And he said, what every child needs is at least one adult who's irrationally crazy about them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought, oh, you, you know, where, where can we get the adults to be irrationally crazy about kids? And we're in this population explosion of, of older people. So I thought, you know, untapped needs, unmet Unmet needs, untapped resources, let's kind of clear that market. But mm -hmm. it turns out that older people are not just warm bodies. We're actually going back to the grandmother hypothesis built for this role. As you get older, there's now research by a, a psychologist at Stanford named Laura Carstensen shows that as we get a sense that there are fewer years ahead than behind, it drives us to think about relationships in our in our life. You know, if you told you have three months left to live, you don't go out and study the oboe. Right? You know, you <laughs> right, go see your right. siblings and your yeah, family. And and so as we get older, we actually have an inchoate sense that there's less time ahead, and it leads us to focus on relationships and all the most important skills in relationship, emotional regulation, empathy, actually gets stronger as we get older. There's a body of research that shows that as well. And as we were saying before, there's a direction to a lot of that connection, which is that it flows downhill, that we mm -hmm. start thinking about the next generation and investing in that group. And now you mentioned some of the benefits to these kids who have some type of a mentor or an older figure involved in their lives. Um, apparently, there's hard data that actually shows their grades are better and all kinds of benefits, right? There, there's quite a bit of evidence now. You know, one of the questions on all this research about resilient kids who who made it uh, despite poverty um, also showed that they had an uncanny ability to seek out adult mentors and make them mentor them. They were really? charismatic. <laughs> so the question was, you know, could you could you provide that kind of support for kids who didn't have the internal wherewithal to to do it on their own? And so we did a study of the Big Brother Big Sister program, which had been around for a hundred years, um, had seventy thousand kids who were being mentored, but thirty thousand on the waiting list, waiting a year and a half. So we took a thousand really? kids, gave five hundred Big Sisters and Big Brothers. Eight and 500 waited the 18 months. And we just wanted to see what's the difference at the end of 18 months. 46% difference in kids using drugs, 50% difference in school truancy, 33% wow. difference in violent behavior. It was so dramatic. Wow, that's incredible. And they weren't, you know, these were not sophisticated drug prevention programs. They were going to McDonald's and eating trans fats and undermining the longevity revolution, <laughs> but it was making all the difference yeah. in, in the lives of kids. And and since then, um, there have been numerous other studies that have shown that these bonds are are 
absolutely critical to the well-being of, of young people. How about to the other extreme, uh, the older people, the seniors who mentor kids and get involved in their lives? What are the cognitive, emotional, and maybe even physical benefits to seniors of building these bonds? Well, about uh, 25 years ago, I teamed up with a uh, a geriatrician named Linda Freed, who is now the dean of the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. And we created with John Gardner a program called Experience Corps, in which teams of 10 to 15 older people will spend half time working in inner city elementary schools, mentoring and tutoring young people. And over time, researchers at Johns Hopkins Medical School, where Linda Freed previously worked, and at Washington University in St. Louis have been studying the benefits to, to young people, uh, which have been considerable, but also to older people. And there's now a, a, a study out from Hopkins Medical School, which shows that participation in Experience Corps reverses some of the preconditions to dementia. Wow. So not only does this kind of engagement make people happy, but it also makes them healthier. There's been much lower uh, rates of diabetes and other chronic conditions. Um, but it might even play an important role in living longer and and uh, and living in a healthy mm -hmm. cognitive state as well. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. The less you focus on longevity and just focus on giving meaning and purpose to those years, uh, maybe the side benefit is that you do get a few more years. Yes. And, yeah. and there is huh. there's so much um deeply spiritual benefit as well you know young mm -hmm. people need to be nurtured but older people need to nurture to be needed and i i remember going to experience core years ago and and meeting uh one of the members of of a team in an elementary school in philadelphia a woman named martha jones who told me a story of of a cold Philadelphia morning where she really did not want to go to school. She'd been sick. It was sleeting outside and she went back to bed and then she realized how much she'd be missed by the kids and finally <laughs> pulled herself out. She drove to uh, to school and while she was hanging up her, her coat, she felt these two little arms climbing up from behind her. And she said, somebody <laughs> loves me. And I think, you know, we, we just all throughout the life course, we, we need not just a sense of purpose, but, but a need to be needed. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Mark Friedman when we come back in just a minute. Hey folks, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and if you're like me, you know how hard it can be to come up with a great Valentine's gift that's personal and actually shows you put thought into it. If you want something that's a reminder of the special memories in your relationship, check out Homesick Candles. Homesick Candles' unique scents reflect all the U.S. states and dozens of cities around the world. They're a thoughtful way to tell the story of your relationship's journey. Each candle is made from a natural soy wax blend and comes in a beautiful gift box. Their new first kiss candle even lets you celebrate the spot where you shared your first kiss. Just go to homesick.com and check out their first kiss finder to pick yours. I'll never forget, my wife and I shared our first kiss on an October night in Pasadena, California. And every time I light Homesick's Southern California candle, that distinctive smell of orange blossoms and jasmine in the night air brings all those memories flooding back. Another place I've spent a lot of time over the years is Austin, Texas. Every time I light Homesick's Austin candle, the pine scent reminds me of swimming in Barton Creek, 
The hints of cedar wood take me all the way back to my boyhood at summer camp in the Texas Hill Country. And the notes of musk and leather even remind me of the night my wife and our friends went bar hopping along Austin's famous 6th Street. That's because none of our other senses have the power to evoke a special memory, a sense of time and place like scent does. Maybe even a moment from long ago that you might have thought you'd forgotten. That's what makes homesick candles such a brilliant idea. I'm already thinking about which candles to get for my friend's birthdays, for my brother, and my parents' anniversary, because a gift that actually has meaning to someone is priceless. So go to homesick.com, and for every classic size or three-wick candle you purchase, you'll get a free mini candle of your choice. Just pick your favorite memories and candle, add them to your cart, and for each classic or three-wick, you can add your choice of any mini candle for free. All you have to do is enter the code KICK at checkout. That's homesick.com with promo code KICK for this awesome deal. One more time, homesick.com and promo code KICK. This great offer is only available until February 15th, so order now. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more, especially when the likes of social media can be so addictive and time-consuming. So you might think that you don't have time to read a book or develop yourself. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways and need-to-know information. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library. From self-help, business, and health to history books. I read a lot of books for interviews on this podcast, and that takes up a large part of my day. But with Blinkist, I can get to the most important points of a book, which prepares me for my interviews in less time, and really makes me a more intelligent, informed, healthy me. For instance, I just had Dr. Steven Pinker back on the podcast, so beforehand I used Blinkist for a quick refresher course on two of his most recent books, The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. They have a long list of books available. Over the holidays, I used Blinkist to reacquaint myself with Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Plus, I'm an auditory learner, so being able to listen with Blinkist suits me perfectly. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com kick to start your free 7-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash kick to start your free seven-day trial. One more time, Blinkist.com slash kick. Did you know that 43% of college graduates are underemployed, working jobs that don't even require a college degree? Imagine if one of the most significant investments of your life, your college degree, only worked half the time. A refund is the least you'd expect. With courses in software engineering, data science, and UX UI design, Flatiron School stands behind its students with a tuition money-back guarantee. Flatiron offers graduates a career services program with career coaches and ongoing learning. Students who follow every step of the plan and don't get a qualifying tech job offer within six months of graduating are eligible for a full tuition refund. See the complete details at flatironschool.com terms. With graduates at hundreds of leading tech companies, the Flatiron School program is working. Full and part-time programs are available online and at Flatiron School campuses around the world. Join the school that's reinventing education, starting with student outcomes. 
Learn more at flatironschool.com slash kickass. Again, that's flatironschool.com slash kickass. And now, back to the show. Now, you highlight this particular kinship between the very young and the very old in a way that doesn't necessarily exist between those groups and that middle generation. Why do young people and old people get along so well? Is there some kind of common cause between them? Well, you know, I think I think there is. Um, Margaret Mead, another uh Great uh, anthropologist yeah. said that that the young and the old uh, had a lot of fellow feeling because they had a common enemy. Those people in the middle. <laughs> right. I don't know if she was right about that, but I do think it 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 is rooted in the cycle of life. You know, mm-hmm. as we near that period where where we realize the you know the years ahead are are smaller. I think in a very deep way. Um, we're able to ease that central sorrow of our mortality through knowing that we're passing on what we've learned from life to to young people, to children. In fact, there's a, a wonderful Greek proverb, society grows great when older people plant trees under whose shade they shall never sit. And so I think that that is, uh, a, you know, an encapsulation of that impulse. In many ways, these are the roles that were traditionally played by grandparents. But of course, not everyone's grandparents are alive, and maybe they live across the country from their grandparents. You and your wife actually have a couple of older neighbors who you say act as surrogate grandparents to your own children. As our definition of family broadens and evolves in this century, does our concept of the grandparent relationship need to evolve as well? I think it does. You know, I feel like one of the central tasks is how do we adapt the grandmother hypothesis to the modern family world? Right? Yeah. I'm, I'm not advocating a return to the 19th century farmstead. Yeah. You know, even <laughs> if that was a good idea, we're not we're not heading back in that direction. So I, I, we shouldn't succumb to nostalgia, but there there's a, a timelessness to this kind of, of relationship. Uh, but I think we need to redefine it in the current context. And there's such an urgency to do that because this year, 2019, for the first time ever, we have more people over 60 than under right. 18 in this country. It's the first time we've really become a more old than young society. And you know, you could look at that as a source of, of conflict, kids versus canes. And, yeah. uh, but actually, the, those arrangements fit together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. And But, but it requires finding new ways to build kinship among people who aren't blood relatives. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you were saying, um, yeah, I, I live in a block uh, in um, a small town, smallish town of 15,000 people, and there are two 80-something uh, uh, individuals, Joyce and Jake Anderson, who live two doors down from us. Their kids live in Idaho and and in the Sierras, their grandchildren are are hundreds of miles away. They, they have a wonderful time when they see them. Our grandparents, our children's grandparents, are on the East Coast or in Southern California. So all the rest of the time, uh, Joyce and Jake are surrogate grandparents to our kids. Really? Everybody's for the better, <laughs> and um, and it's a, a an example of how we can. C- build these bonds even among people who aren't blood relatives. Was it at all hard to get your kids to want to hang out with seniors, especially if they're not their biological grandparents? They're not like, oh, old people are boring or, ooh, old people smell. Yeah, well, you that, know. That, that wasn't a hard sell? <laughs> well, you know, they they 
they first met Joyce and Jake when they were very young, and it was just natural for them okay. to interact to, to what you were saying earlier about this bond between young children mm-hmm. and older people. But I, I think there are two keys that are more widely applicable. One is just the power of proximity. When mm-hmm. we're living near each other, when we're in each other's path, there there's less – we're less prone to create these stereotypes of older people or younger people as, you know, these extreme uh, versions. But the, the second is common interest. Um, it, it seems like where our kids have connected with Joyce and Jake is always around the common interest. My middle son is a, is a maker and, Joy, and Jake was an airline, airplane mechanic and you know, they they bonded around tools and the tool shed. My youngest is a coin collector, and Joyce is a numismatist, and <laughs> and so they. I, I found that proximity and and finding mutual interests ended up creating these very mm-hmm. natural bonds, uh, which really are bonds yeah. of love more than just of common interest. Now, yeah, and that speaks to something that you point out in the book is you can't rush these relationships. You can't have an older person who just parachutes into a kid's life for one hour out of every month. These are bonds that have to come with time. It's like baking a souffle. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that for, even from the Big Brother, Big Sister research. We we try to figure out uh, not just whether whether mentors could benefit young people, but which mentors were successful and and which weren't. And it was the, you know, the uh, – person who came in with a strategic plan for transforming the life of a young person who was a dismal failure and the ones who just tried to connect, to find common interests, to listen, who were spectacular successes. At the at the end of nine months in the Big Brother Big Sister study, only 9% of the children who had these strategic planning, advice-giving mentors were actually meeting with them. They were hiding from these people. You know, they'd be <laughs> running out the back door. And it was the ones who were going to play catch who were making all the difference in their lives. Now, as you pointed out in the beginning, it seems like there has never been less interaction between seniors and young people. And there are a number of reasons for that. One of them certainly has to be ageism. And in some ways, it seems to me that ageism is the last form of blatant discrimination that is still socially accepted among a good portion of the population. I mean, if I got cut off on the freeway, I would never say, oh, Asian drivers, you know, in this day and age. But, you know, still, I hear plenty of people who go around and complain about elderly drivers all the time. It's it's true. And I feel like the the root of ageism is is partly in a, our longstanding cultural obsession with youth. Um, mm-hmm. Young is better. <laughs> and in fact, uh, what we've seen over the last 50 years is an attempt to rebrand later life as a kind of ersatz, um, weak version of, of a second youth, graying as play. Yeah. yeah. So that's part of it. And then the other part is this radical age segregation that we mm-hmm. were talking about earlier when I think that's age segregation is the soil in which ageism takes takes root and fully flowers. If you don't have contact with people who are different than you or at different ages, it's it's easy to concoct the these stereotypes. But it's also, you know, go back to the self-inflicted wound. Uh, unlike a lot of other differences in society, 
young people will soon be those older people. So right. it's 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 a, a, a one of the most extreme forms of prejudice against our our own selves, our right. own future. <laughs> um, so so you know I think it's really important that we re- recapture the sense of the wholeness mm-hmm. of life, um, in part so that people understand each other, but in as much so we understand ourselves because we we're, we're going to inhabit every one of yeah. those parts. And it's not just society, the younger part of society, doing it to the elderly. In many cases, it's the elderly doing it to themselves. And you talk about this trope of aging is playing. And one of the chief culprits for this is a man named Ben Schleifer, who started (laughs) off apparently, it sounds like, with good intentions and built this planned community for seniors called Youngtown. Tell us a little about him and what happened to his dream. And it's it is a reminder that none of this is a nefarious plot. And if you go back to the origins, a lot of what has happened really made sense in in context. In the late 1940s and 1950s in this country, older people were at loose ends. Walter Ruther, the UAW leader, got up in front of his union in 1948 and described retirees as too old to work, too young to die. It was the huh. stage of limbo wow. at the end of the lifespan. And and older people were in a despairing state. And a group of entrepreneurs tried to solve this problem of the purpose gap at the end of life. Big Ben Schleifer was uh, a real estate agent in Phoenix, but he had come from New York. He was a socialist. He ha- had uh, this ideal of creating a kibbutz for older people in the middle of the <laughs> desert where they could escape all of this ageism and age prejudice, uh, have a sense of community, and be young again. Mm-hmm. Um, at the, the, at the name Youngtown uh, shows that first AARP chapter in the country, Youngtown was uh, featured on Dave Garraway's TV show in the mid-1950s, watched by millions of Americans. And it captured this way that older people could could find meaning, purpose, community, and escape the the harsh views uh, of society. Um, and the cold. And the cold. Uh, it was the inspiration for Del Webb, who created across the street from Youngtown, Sun City, which had tens of thousands of people come to it and invented the whole Sunshine City idea. But but the, the problem with Youngtown and, and excluding young people um, was that you know, the the idea was that if everybody was old, then nobody was old. It wasn't just oh, escaping school taxes, but but ch- actual children punctured the illusion of a second youth. Right. <laughs> and this all came to a head in the 1990s when Youngtown was in the national news for expelling uh, a couple grandparents for the heinous crime of harboring their grandson who was <laughs> suffering abuse from a stepfather elsewhere in Arizona. The the community planted a, a sign on their lawn harboring children. It was like the scarlet letter, find them $100 a day until they stopped. The New York Times, when they wrote about what was happening at Youngtown, pointed out that dogs were allowed at Youngtown, just not children. <laughs> and across the street at Sun City, one of the most popular volunteer act Activities to this day is the age police, which follow <laughs> school buses around to make really? sure that they're not dropping children off in the <laughs> in the community. So it it it's it's it became perverse, mm-hmm. and I think it's um, it's all the more. Uh, unhelpful as we move into this new demographic era where we do have more older people than than young people. We we can't yeah. have a national age police <laughs> keeping the generations <laughs> apart. We need to move in the other direction. Now, I was interested to read that even the retirement age is pretty arbitrary. 
I guess this age that 65 was some kind of magic number for Social Security and by extension retirement actually comes from the Prussian military, right? It, it comes from Otto von Bismarck in the <laughs> eight. It's not even a an er, uh, early 20th century right. notion. It's a when 19th probably, century notion. You know, retired at 65 and lived to 66. Right, something. right. Bismarck, in yeah. fact, picked that as a number, convinced that the state would never pay out a, yeah. a, a single pension. He was 78 <laughs> at the time, but he didn't consider himself part of the rest of humanity. But John Chauvin, an economist at Stanford, has shown the absurdity of this idea that at 65, you're over the hill. He, he, he points out that we would never use $1935 in 2019 without yeah. adjusting them for inflation but we use the 1935 de- definition of being elderly of being over the hill as if it was some eternal verity <laughs> and meanwhile we've been adding you know the 2 months a year to the american lifespan so we we really need to rethink our our view of the life course yeah now speaking of social security you warn of this battle of kids versus canes, and it makes me think of those who repeat some version of baby boomers are mortgaging their future. Who's behind this whole kids versus cane rhetoric? Is it political? Is it special interests? Who stands to gain from pitting young and old against each other? Well, you know, I think it is uh, a reflection of of a view of uh, American society as itself being over the hill, having more older people than younger people. We've always identified ourselves as a young nation. We split off from the old world. We were the new world. Um, we, we've glorified youth throughout much of our history. And I think it's a shock to the system. And I think all we can think about are the negative consequences that were locked in the zero-sum struggle between these age groups, uh, there's going to be scarcity, isolation, mis- misunderstanding. And I, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this. This is a huge seismic shift in in the makeup of the population. And there is going to require a working through of, of everything from entitlements through uh, our housing arrangements and work workplaces. But in fact, um, if, you know, if we go back to the ancient truths of the grandmother hypothesis and we look at developmental psychology, um, the, the, these, these generations fit together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I'm somebody who spent much of my life thinking about how we can do right by young people. And if, you know, you were to bring in Bain or, or McKinsey and get in front of a whiteboard and think of a population that had all the assets that young people need today, it would look an awful lot like the older population that's washing over us. And so I think there's an enormous opportunity for resilience in, in the current situation. I want to talk a little about some solutions to all this. One place that you say is doing a really good job of addressing this issue and creating opportunities for more interaction between these generations is Singapore. Singapore is, of course, synonymous with efficiency and outcomes-driven innovation. What's Singapore doing right on this particular front? Well, it's, we're sitting here in, in the Los Angeles area. Singapore is about the size of Los Angeles, and they're spending $3 billion Singaporean dollars, about $2.1 billion U.S. dollars, to become a kampong for all ages, kampong being the Malay word for village, built around intergenerational harmony. And, you know, you think of it as a society, an Asian society that where there's a lot of respect for older people, but the forces of modern life have divided the generations in, in Singapore. And really? so there, it's it's taking a, a large-scale society-wide initiative to realize this, but it's it's rooted in common sense. So every senior center 
and every preschool that's built in Singapore now will be co-located. They're building three-generation flats, housing to bring older, middle, and, and younger people together so that they have this proximity in, in daily life. They're, um, every time uh, a lease comes up uh, to be renewed for, for the precious land there, so I went to a church near the National University of Singapore, in order for them to get their lease renewed, um, they, they're building an assisted living facility and a preschool for 200 children at, where, where young and old will interact in, in daily life. And so there's been a, a broad societal sense of, of purpose uh, ar around connecting the generations. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea of actually having them live in the same space. In some cases, you say there are programs where college students and young people who are actually living with older people how does that work out? I mean, isn't there friction between the seniors who maybe go to bed early and some kid shows up after partying at 2 a.m. and has a few drinks or wants to bring a girl home? Yes, yes. Well, you know, I don't want to overly romanticize this, okay. but I, I, there are, are some spectacular examples here in the United States of of how the generations can come come together and avoid some of those pitfalls. In fact, when Singapore was devising their plan, they went to the U.S. to come up with ideas, and then they took it to a grand scale. But you know, one example I think you might be referring to is a a beautiful uh, uh, senior living community in Cleveland called Judson Manor, which is perched yeah. between the Cleveland Clinic, so you get the medical care on one side, and on the other side, the Case Western Campus, all of the cultural institutions of the city, including the art school and the music school. And the folks at Judson, being art-loving older people, decided that they would provide free housing for graduate students in music in return for these music students playing concerts. And so they moved into Judson Manor. Uh, there's a wonderful video about the place called the Retirement Dorm. And these amazing things happened. I went there last year, and I met a, a a resident at Judson Manor in her 90s, her neighbor uh, was a young violist who married another young violist from the Cleveland Institute of Music. And when they decided to get married, they asked their neighbor, their 90-something neighbor, to be the maid of honor. You know, <laughs> that was never really part sweet. of the plan. In fact, when I went there, there was a, a, a group of 25 Swedish social scientists who'd come to Judson Manor to come up with ideas for a better society. So, you know, when the Scandinavians are coming to Cleveland in November, it gives you an idea this <laughs> ferment in the United States. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of great things happening here, including in, in the sharing economy. Two recent MIT city planning graduates have started something called Nesterly, which is focused on, on uh, very expensive housing markets where graduate students are having a tough time paying the bills and where many older people have room to spare. So the in exchange for reduced rent, the graduate students do chores for the older people. But again, what starts with efficiency ends up in humanity, and it's these relationships that, that blossom. Another way that you approach this is you encourage older people to either go back to school and interact with kids in classes or to, uh, I'm trying to think, what was the movie, The Intern with yes, Robert De Niro? And, go, and go, go back to work at a company? Are, are, are these young, innovative companies actually creating programs like that? Are they looking for that sort of thing? You know, I think all, all of these basic institutions of society where we were remarkably creative 
in separating people out in communities, in the workplace, in education, are now starting to discover the benefits of actually bringing people together. There is a a, a new form of education that is spreading around the country. Uh, Rosabeth Cantor, a Harvard Business School professor, has called it the third stage of education. She created a one-year program at Harvard where people in their 60s and 70s could come back to school for a year to launch the next chapter in their lives. Stanford has a program called the Distinguished Careers Institute, uh, the University of Minnesota, Notre Dame. And what these programs are doing is partly providing a springboard for people moving into this this extended midlife period, but they're age-integrating higher education in the process. I've been at classes at Stanford, the University of Minnesota. I met this young woman at the University of Minnesota who was wondering why there were all these old people in her future of work class. And then she discovered along the way it was because they had actually worked. So <laughs> they knew something yeah. about it. So I think I think we're in, in many ways, we're finding new ways to do old things, um, to, and, and that involves reintegrating uh, these, these central parts of daily life. Michael Lewis wrote a book not too long ago called The Undoing Project, and I think that would be an apt title for a lot of what's happening, whether it's the University of Minnesota or the intern in the workplace or, or communities where we're bringing the generations together. And one of the most fascinating revelations is this book is how AI plays into all of this. You know, there are a lot of people who have a very dystopian view of the dawn of artificial intelligence and automation. Many of a certain age probably assume that AI is going to take them out of the workforce. But you say it's the opposite that's the case. Explain. You know, I just came here from Chicago. And when I was driving to my hotel uh, the other night in, in Chicago, I came across a prudential billboard which said, uh, you can't be replaced. You're in your job by a robot if you've retired early. You know, this fear-mongering, <laughs> I'm not getting That's that funny. the wording exactly right. Yeah. It was a little wittier, but this idea that we're all going to be replaced by robots. But in fact, you know, as AI progresses, the kind of work that's left is the work that only only human beings can do. Mm-hmm. And older people who are thought of as to be, you know, the, the central victims of this plot, in fact, may have precisely the skills that are, are least replaceable, these skills of empathy, emotional regulation, of forming relationships and bonds. So in, in one of the great twists of the unfolding century, it may actually be that the, the future is older people in the workplace and in other <laughs> spheres. Interesting. So AI is putting a premium on humanity, the yeah. kind of humanity <laughs> that only older people have the time to offer, probably. Well, that's my most yeah. optimistic. Uh, but I do think it's it's true. Bill, Bill Gates has proposed that we uh, tax robots um, and <laughs> and use that money to pay for empathy work. And if he succeeds in that <laughs> scheme, it may be older people who will do yeah. a lot of that empathy work. <laughs> Well, you end the book with a few final thoughts to keep in mind in order to foster these kind of bonds. Uh, can you walk us through those? Sure. You know, it's it picks up on something we talked about earlier. I, I think the biggest uh, thing we can do is to break out of the age bubble. Society may be separating us by, by age, but we can fight that. And, and in our housing choices, don't go live in a community that 
plants a sign on your lawn if your grandchildren come to visit and finds you every day. Try to find a neighborhood where where you can interact with young people. Get involved with schools. Uh, one of my board members has the idea that we should be creating foster PTAs, PTAs consisting yeah. of older people since parents are so busy anyway. Yeah. Um, so so try, try to put ourselves in the path of the next generation. But, but most I mean, of, that might be more productive than the condo board. Yes. <laughs> And I and maybe I, a little I, less contentious. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, and then you know, I, I I think common interest is really important. There are powerful developmental features that that drive young and old to to connect with each other. But it really helps if you have an intermediary. I think of my son with my neighbor Jake Anderson at the at the uh, power saw. Uh, maybe that isn't such a good idea. <laughs> but or they or the uh, the young music students and the older music lovers at Judson Manor. I, I think that's really important. But you know, I'd say one of the biggest things we can do is actually just focus on on listening. Um, I learned that in the Big Brother, Big Sister research. My mentor, John Gardner, said that, um, you know, everybody wants to be interesting, but the, the real skill is being interested. Good advice. And also people can check out Encore.org. Uh, briefly before we go, tell us a little about the programs that you guys have in place to address this. Well, our first program was Experience Corps, which you can think of as a, a Peace Corps comprised of older people focused on on low-income elementary schools, helping kids read by grade three. We developed for 10 years something called the Purpose Prize, which is focused on social innovators over the age of 60. You know, we think of of innovation as being the exclusive province of young people. But over that 10-year period, we had 10,000 nominations wow, for cool. the Purpose Prize. And we have a a program now called the Encore Fellows Program, which is essentially a gap year for grown-ups, where you can spend a year in a nonprofit using your previous skills, maybe in, from the corporate world, but in ways that help strengthen the capacity of nonprofits. And our our latest effort is a campaign to get a million older people to stand up and show up for the next generation. It's called Generation to Generation. Wow, fantastic stuff! Well, folks, go check out Encore.org and learn more, donate, and whatever you can do to get involved. And again, Mark's book is called How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations. Mark Friedman, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Mark Friedman for coming on the podcast. Be sure to visit his organization, Encore.org, and order his new book, How to Live Forever, The Enduring Power of Connecting the Generations, on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. Flatiron School is reinventing education, starting with student outcomes. With courses in software engineering, data science, and UX UI design, Flatiron School stands behind its students with a tuition money-back guarantee. Learn more at flatironschool.com slash kickass. That's flatironschool.com slash kickass. In today's age, it can be hard to sit down and learn more. You may think you don't have time to read a book. Well, think again. Blinkist is the only app that condenses thousands of nonfiction books into the best key takeaways. So you can read or listen to them in just 15 minutes. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for my audience. Go to Blinkist.com kick to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. 
Blinkist.com kick to start your free seven-day trial. One more time, that's Blinkist.com kick. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on iTunes and leave us a review. You can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And as always, I welcome your comments, questions, and ideas at comments at kickassnews.com. I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.